Amen. Thank you, Aaron and praise team. Appreciate you guys. This morning, our text is a communion service, which actually fits really well with our communion service today. Thanks, Brad. But we are going to see that the Bible is also full of truth and grace and humor, that there are some times that I'm convinced the Bible writers knew that they were being funny, and I asked my wife, how in the world do I preach a text about a guy who falls asleep in church and falls out the window and dies? And that's where we are today. Some of you are nodding your heads because you've already studied this passage in uh, your Sunday morning small groups. I went up to see one of the small groups this morning, and I said, what's going on? And they said, oh, you know, we're just reading about a guy falling out the window, falling asleep and dying. And I said, yep, that's where we are today. This is how you know that, uh, you know, we didn't write the Bible. It's not something that man invented. Clearly, this is something that the Lord intended because we would never have included this weird stuff, this hard stuff to preach and teach. But here we are this morning in Acts chapter 20. And we're going to see the conclusion of Paul's third missionary journey. Last week, we left Paul in Ephesus, where we know he was teaching in the, the marketplace for uh, two whole years. He was evangelizing and, and planting the church there and building up the church as he was teaching the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And things were going really well when we left off. The forces of darkness were in full retreat. We saw revival breaking out in Ephesus and things were going great. But here's the thing. When communities turn to Jesus and are transformed by the gospel, there are consequences and in Ephesus, it was no different. There were severe economic and political changes that must necessarily occur because of the transforming power of the gospel. There were a lot of people in Ephesus who made their living off of the occult. They made money, they, they turned a quick buck over superstition and, and dark arts. We saw that last week, how people burned their books in the city. It was worth uh, a fortune, all the dark arts books that were burned. <clears throat> so when people began to choose the triune God of the universe over Artemis and over all the, the false gods that were offered there in Ephesus, the city began to be uh, at unrest. Uh, there was a recession that was created among those who made their money off of idolatry. So look at the, the, the map here. It led to a riot in Ephesus. We see that the, a whole big riot started in Ephesus and Paul was forced to leave eventually. So remember, we started in Antioch. This is always the sending church here. And Paul decided to go overland up through his hometown of Tarsus and all the way back through Galatia and Asia. And that's where he ends up in Ephesus. That's where he was wanting to go, where he had left Priscilla and Aquila. Then he went up to Troas and into Macedonia, again, to encourage these churches that had been planted there. Look at verse 1 in our text. After the uproar in Ephesus ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. There he was in Philippi, encouraging those young uh, churches there. And then he went back down into Greece, back to Athens and all those places, doing the same thing. Look at verse 2. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So go back to the map, Will. His original plan was that after he went back to Athens and Corinth, 
he was going to go from Corinth with the collection that he'd been taking up for the struggling church in Jerusalem, the mother church, First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, as I like to call it. Um, I got in trouble for saying that someone called and said, that wasn't a Baptist church. There wasn't Baptist back then. I said, I know, I was trying to be funny. Sorry. Didn't, didn't work, obviously. His plan was to sail from Corinth back to Jerusalem with this big offering to give to the, the mother church. They were struggling because there was such intense Jewish persecution there in Jerusalem. But he found out that on his sailing trip from Corinth to Jerusalem that they were going to try to kill him. So he doubled back and he went back from Corinth up through Macedonia and through Asia over land. And he ends up at Troas, where we're going to be today for this special communion service. Look at verse three. He spent three months in Troas. I mean, in, in, that was the first time around. And then when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, back to Damascus and then Jerusalem, he decided to return through Macedonia. And he's got these guys with him. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Troas was a beautiful coastal city. I don't know about you, my wife loves coastal cities. She loves the water and the beach, and I think it's funny, we were talking about Franklin High changing their name to the Admirals, being that we're very landlocked here in Tennessee, and we have the Commodores and the Admirals. I'm sure there's good reasons. I know George Vanderbilt was a Commodore or something, I know, but uh, I think it's interesting. Troas was a coastal city. It was next to the ancient city of Troy. We know where Troy was. And Paul would soon end up presiding over a communion service that would not soon be forgotten. His traveling companions had gone on ahead of him to Troas, and they were eagerly awaiting his arrival uh, five days after they got there. So it's this diverse group of travelers that represent all the churches from every region that Paul had been to on his third missionary journey, collecting this offering to take back to Jerusalem. And these guys are traveling with him, A, for safety, to help him stay safe from robbers because he's got this big offering with him. B, they serve as official representatives of those that are going to Jerusalem to bring this offering. And they all together with the saints gather in Troas for a special service on the Lord's Day. It says here, this is the first time in the New Testament that we know that Christians worshiped on Sunday the Sabbath day of Saturday. So look at verse seven. On the first day of the week, Sunday, the Lord's day, when we were gathered together, Luke is with them, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. So most likely the church is gathered in a large private home, as they would do back in these days, in a house church. They're up in this upper room, and of course the place was packed because the Apostle Paul had come to town with all these strange people from Asia Minor and from Greece and all over the world that are with him. 
And it's a one night only event because he's planning on leaving. First thing in the morning, he's got to get to Jerusalem. So he's planning on getting out of there, but that doesn't happen because this was a, a, a day that would, would live on in the life of the church for many years to come and even to this day. It was a night service because remember that Sunday was a work day for the Jewish people around there. Sunday was a, not a, a day off, a day of rest as it has become for us, for some of us. I tell people Sunday is my Monday, but I love it. <laughs> but Sunday is a work day, so they have to have an evening service. And these people are tired. They've already put in a full day of labor. And now they pack this upper room in order to celebrate the Lord's table the communion service, and it's on the special day of Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. And Paul, he's not a short talker, okay? He's, he's got a lot to say. Remember, he's been preaching in Ephesus for five hours, six days a week. He's been unpacking the infinite, marvelous mysteries of the gospel as he's learning and growing in grace. And, he, and the more he learns and apprehends about the gospel, the more he realizes he's just scratching the surface of God's plan. So he has a lot to say on this evening. And the more, again, he's, he's speaking, the more he's on a roll. And the good graces of God as revealed in Holy Scripture are innumerable and infinite in their majesty and beauty. And this is his only shot in Troas because he's leaving in the morning for Jerusalem. So he just keeps preaching and preaching. Now, I try to preach for like 30 minutes, okay? I try to keep it to 30 minutes. My wife will sometimes ask me on Thursday or Friday, what's your word count on your sermon? And usually it's about 100 words per minute of preaching. And I'll say, it's about 2,800. She says, wrap it up. Just wrap it up. Just go ahead and put a bow on it. It's, it's, it's good. I've had a few times where I knew it'd be longer, but generally sermons here are about 30 minutes. Jude got a watch a couple years ago, and it had a timer function on it, which we thought was cool. I'm not sure what he's going to use it for. It wasn't long after he had that watch that after the service, he'd come up to me and say, 32 minutes, Dad, and kind of shake his head, you know, unapproving. Hey, went a little long today, Dad. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate that accountability that I didn't ask for. John Newton, some of you know that name. He was a former slave trader who became converted to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he put down his slave trading ways and became an Anglican priest and wrote a little tune. You may have heard Amazing Grace. He said this, when weariness begins in church, edification ends. <laughs> I get it. When weariness begins, edification ends. Okay, I, it's probably true. But Paul was on fire. For Jesus, remember this guy's zeal and his passion for everything is just at a level 11 all the time. It was when he was persecuting Christians, and now that he is one, his zeal for evangelizing and teaching the truths of Christ are equally on fire. So his sermon was propelled by this passion deep into the night. And the word for lamps here, he says there were a lot of lamps in this room. Uh, that also means torches. So I'm sure it was stuffy. I'm sure it was warm in there. And eventually, human weakness, human reality sets in. Look at verse 9. A young man named Eutychus. Oh, poor Eutychus. Sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep. 
as Paul talked still longer (laughs) and being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Oh, poor Eutychus. I mean, that could have been any one of us, right? This poor guy lives on in infamy, but it could have been any of us. If you've never fallen asleep in church before, I question how many church services you've actually sat through, okay? Because I know I've fallen asleep before. When we had the choir on TV, we'd always have to watch for people nodding off back there in the choir, and you could always tell. Don't think we couldn't see you, choir members, okay? These uh, poor, you know, Eutychus was fighting sleep so hard, but he couldn't last. The Greek word that's used here for sleep is hypno. He was hypnotized by the torchlight and by Paul's cadence and his voice. You ever have those preachers that had that beautiful cadence that just kind of lulls you to sleep? I've had a few of those. Frank is so soothing with his voice sometimes. I think he's, (laughs) I've I've slept through plenty of services at First Baptist. (laughs) Incredible preacher, amazing preacher. I'm I'm not proud of it. The phrase here that says he was taken up dead means he really died. He, he fell out of the third floor window headlong and he actually was dead is what the text says here. That will really put a damper on a service, won't it? We've had a few emergencies in a service and you just kind of, you're done kind of at that point. I've had a few blunders that you just kind of, okay, sermon's over. <laughs> And these people hadn't even gotten to the Lord's Supper part of the service yet. And now the service is basically done. They're in a state of mourning and and crying and wailing over the loss of this young man, all the potential of his life. It's always tragic when anyone dies, but especially a young person. But the Lord had other plans. Look at verse 10. Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. When it says that Paul bent down over him, the the connotation here is like what happened with Elijah and Elisha, that he prostrated himself across the body of poor Eutychus and said a prayer and the Lord revived him. His, His lungs filled with air once again as he was brought back to life through the Holy Spirit. It was a beautiful, life-giving miracle, which is the story of the gospel, right? Death giving way to life. Life being restored to someone who was written off as dead. This is a gospel uh, example happening right here. You better believe that no one was sleepy after this point. We're going to have communion now. And they file back upstairs. They go back to the upper room and they praise God. They're ready to celebrate a communion time unlike any other in history. They've been on a emotional roller coaster over the last uh, several hours of being sleepy, then being sad, and now praising God. Look at verse 11. When Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed, and they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. I don't like how the ESV says that, but it says they were greatly comforted uh, is how that, that translates. You gotta feel bad again for Eutychus, right? I mean, first off, if I had the opportunity to sit under the preaching of Paul, like probably the greatest preacher besides Jesus of all time, 
It's like nodding off in the front row of like a huge Billy Graham crusade or something, right? You don't want to be the guy who falls asleep while Paul is preaching. And second, I mean, you know, Eutychus is, happens to fall asleep where the good Dr. Luke is taking notes about everything that's happening and so records for posterity what happened to poor Eutychus and he becomes this living example, the first documented case of someone falling asleep in church. And I learned early on as a youth pastor that this is a phenomenon that happens often and uh, we would take a lot of weekend retreats and we'd, we'd go somewhere nearby like Deer Run. We're going to Deer Run today to hang out with some families and Miss Rachel today. And I thought it was super spiritual of us to come back on Sunday for worship because corporate worship matters and our youth should be there worshiping with their families and in the, the worship of the Lord with our whole church family. I thought that was a great idea until we did it a couple times and I realized nobody sleeps on those retreats, right? So we get back on Sunday morning and these kids are just fried. And not only are the kids fried, but so are the chaperones and the youth pastor too, who's been trying to wrangle them for the last two nights as well. And then we all were just fighting sleep during these sermons together. And there were some unbelievable moments. I saw one kid put his head in his hands like this. And when he fell asleep, he fell out of the pew, just tumbled right completely out of the pew. Uh, I've seen kids bonk their heads on the pew. And my favorite has got to be where they wake themselves up snoring. You know what I mean? Where they go, oh, where am I? You know, that happened on more than one occasion. It's just no one's getting anything out of the service at that point, And it's just embarrassing for me and for our youth. People fall asleep in church, okay? I get it. It happens. I'm not judging anyone. A lot of you work incredibly hard, difficult hours. Some of you, like David Gregory, get like four hours of sleep a night. I don't know how you function. A lot of you are managing kids and, and grandkids and, and uh, high-pressure jobs. A lot of you are just trying to maintain the yard work and the housework during these days. And and own your own businesses. A lot of you are running your own businesses. It's hard. I get it. Sunday morning may be the first time that you've relaxed all week where you can just sit with no pressure for an hour. You know, I keep trying to get Ron to make it cooler in here, but sometimes it's just warm and cozy and we just tend to relax and take a little rest. For some of the greatest Christians here, there are times when the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, it doesn't bother me, honestly, it doesn't, if someone falls asleep in church. What does bother me, and what we're going to talk about today, what concerns me deeply is that there are thousands of people in the Bible Belt who may be warming a pew with their body, who may be watching a service online, but spiritually they are dead asleep. Their souls are conked out. They're not engaged in any kind of authentic way with the living God. I know that people fall asleep again for all kinds of reasons. Maybe you're on a new medication that makes you sleepy or, or whatever it may be. And so again, I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about people whose souls are not awake to the grace and reality of the living God. You know, when is it in your life that you are the most awake that your soul is the most engaged? Is it when you're staring down a five foot birdie putt and you know that there's a lot on the, the line for that putt? Is it when you're at uh, dinner with friends and fellowshipping around the table 
when your soul is most enlivened? Is it when you're about to close a big business deal and you're excited about the financial gain that's gonna come from this deal? What is it that makes you alive? You know, the sad reality is that there's probably a lot of people who are more alive watching football than they are in worship of God. A lot of people who are more engaged with a, a series they're binge watching on Netflix than they are with the living word of God in church or at home even. There are plenty of churchgoers here in a Christian culture who appear to be awake to the reality of God but are in fact spiritually asleep. So why are people in the church asleep? Why are they asleep spiritually? I'm talking to people like you who are watching this service or who are here today, who are church people. Well, there's three reasons that we're gonna talk about. Why are people in church asleep? The first one's pretty obvious. They've never been awake in the first place. They've never actually come to know the Lord as their Lord and the Savior. They're like Neo in the Matrix. Here it goes again, another Matrix reference. <laughs> They're going through the, the ho-hum motions of their everyday life and they, they come to church and play the game of church, but they've never actually been awakened to reality. They are not existing on a deeper spiritual level. They have no idea of what's happening behind the curtain. You know, there are plenty of churchgoers who are not participants in worship, even though they are present, they're merely observers. Yes, they're here, but their hearts are not engaged. I told you last week how my own dad was on church staff. He was a seminary graduate, an associate pastor of a, a church in Houston before he realized he'd never been woken to the Lord. He had to confess to his pastor, I'm not a Christian. I've never put my trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. And he was baptized as a young minister in that church. Remember that our enemy would love nothing more than to keep us asleep spiritually. He would love to keep us numb to the reality of what's happening behind the scenes. Remember in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters where the senior uh, demon is writing to his nephew demon, his, he's the uncle who's a junior demon, and he's giving him all this good advice. And he says to his young uh, nephew, uh, to Wormwood, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. It's like boiling a frog, right? You just keep being numb until the point where you're dead. We wanna make sure that we're truly awake in the first place, okay? The second reason that many people are asleep in the church today is our old mortal enemy, sin. What's wrong with the world? Sin. Why is the debate so hard to watch? Sin. <laughs> Why is uh, the newspaper so messed up? Sin. It's, it's really the bottom line for why things are the way they are. I heard Nan, teacher te te Nan Teeter teaching her class today saying that because of the fall, we have these horrible of results and effects ever since Genesis 3. We've had the promises of God about reversing the effects of the fall, nowhere more so than in Jesus Christ, but sin has lulled us to sleep. There are people who have at one point in time actually been wakened to the reality of God. They've been born again, 
but now they've slipped into a spiritually comatose state. They're just on spiritual life support at this point. We probably all know of so-called Christians who fell so incredibly hard, who were attending church regularly at the time, but they fell to unbelievable depths of depravity when they were the whole time showing that they were Christians, but the reality was they were spiritually asleep. Samson is the preeminent example of this in scripture. Samson began his journey in faith and he ended his journey in faith, but man, in between there, he really messed up big time. Samson's final nap on Delilah's lap is an example of what was happening inside of him as he was dozing on Delilah's lap. Look at Judges 16 verse 20. And Samson awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know, go to the next slide, Will. He, he did not know that the Lord had left him. When the Philistines had surrounded him, he said, ah, oh, no big deal. I'll just go out and handle them like I always do. I'm Samson. But he didn't know that he was spiritually asleep. And that led to his arrest and his execution. Sin desensitizes us, and we soon fall asleep spiritually, even in church. Though our outer appearance may look like everything's fine and we have it all together, sin has made us calloused, and here's the thing, sin has made us bored. I think about young people and all the distractions of media and social media. Sin has made us bored with things of the Lord. It's made us bored with holy things and spiritual things. Finally, the third reason that some people are spiritual slumberers is just familiarity. Many of you have grown up in church and have learned these hymns that we sang today since you were a young child. You know, Carlton Carter joined this church in 1958. He's back here today. 1958, he's been a member of Woodmont Baptist Church. It's easy to grow numb when you're familiar with something, right? Church is just maybe something you do on Sundays because it's what your parents did. It's how you were raised and it's just something you're supposed to do on Sundays because that's what our family does. So you go through the motions, but there's no passion. There's no real, genuine experience of the living God. You know, I have to fight it. I have to fight against the weekly routine of coming to church. I have to fight against the weekly routine of sermon preparation. And it's, it's something that every one of us has to really consciously fight against. When C.S. Lewis was writing to a friend who was considering going into the ministry, Lewis warned him about becoming too familiar with the things that are sacred. He summed it up by saying, none are so unholy unholy as those whose hands are cauterized with holy things. We got to be careful. Let's not take for granted today that the living God communes at this table with us today through his presence with us in the Holy Spirit. That's not boring, right? The living God coming into our midst and joining us in worship that should be anything but boring, but too often it is. 
You know, recently I was at Trader Joe's and they put things in the aisles like they do to try to tempt you as you're checking out. I'm a sucker. They had chocolate-covered espresso beans. And we've been doing our Wednesday night services and it gets dark earlier and I'm tired on Wednesday nights. And I said, oh, those would be perfect for a little pick-me-up before Wednesday night. I figure it's healthier than like an energy drink or something, right? So I bought some coffee beans, chocolate-covered coffee beans to give me a little pick-me-up. What is it that we need to do to stay awake spiritually? What can we do to give ourselves a pick-me-up spiritually today? How do we stay awake in church? (laughs) What if we find ourselves dozing off to the life of the Spirit? First off, I'm gonna give you a few things here we can do. First off, we need to make an honest spiritual assessment of where we are right now today. Let's take a genuine look inwardly and assess how are things going? Have I really been born again? Is sin making me numb and calloused? Am I too familiar with the holy things of God to where I've grown bored by them? You know, if we find that we've never been truly awake, then we must ask the God of all grace to to help us believe and to grant us the gift of faith that we may be saved and born again to a living hope. Others, again, may find that we used to be awake, but now we've grown numb to the reality of God because of sin in our lives. If you're in that numb complacency today, I would encourage you to confess your sins to the Lord and to repent and turn back to him who is gracious and quick to forgive. And others that find yourselves familiar with the holy things of God, I would encourage you today to allow the joy of Christ to refill you, to spur you on to play your part in his good purposes for your life and for this world. You have to rediscover the joy of worship and the joy of intimacy with the Lord. That's the second one, Will. Hit that second slide. To confess sin and repent if you are in that that sinful numbness. And then third and finally, if you are in that familiar a place where you don't find the things of God to be exciting or compelling, (laughs) learn how to love the Lord again. What did Jesus say to the churches in Revelation 2? You've forgotten your first love. What is it that, that excites you? Man, I love tacos. I love the Titans. I wish they didn't all have COVID and could play football. (laughs) You know, do those things excite me more than the living God? Or do I love the Lord with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my strength? That's the goal for those of us who grow familiar. I'm in that boat many times. So I have to consciously and deliberately participate with all of my being in worship every day. Again, I I love to, to hear Ron playing his music as he goes around the church fixing things. He's playing worship songs He's just singing his heart out. He's not joining the choir, Aaron, don't worry. But he's, he's just singing because he loves the Lord and he loves to worship the Lord every day. And I'm reminded when I'm playing secular music that I need to remember, do I love to worship like that? When I'm singing these songs here today, how great is our God? Do I really believe that? I have to engage my mind and my heart in worship. How great is our God. You are great. And lift my heart to the Lord. That takes a little effort on our part. 
And this stuff matters, right? When we sing, our mouths may be moving, but our hearts may be far from the Lord. When we hear scripture being read, do we hear the voice of God speaking lovingly to us, his children? Because the Bible is this beautiful love letter to us. Or do we say, man, I wish they'd just skip the scripture part. When we come together for communion, are we really reflecting on what is going on in our lives first? When someone prays, are we praying along with them, agreeing with them as they pray? And again, this is important stuff because it's a sign of our spiritual maturity and vitality. If we've really been born again from our slumber, if we've confessed our sins before the Lord that so easily entangles, then we must consciously wake up to the wonder of worship in our lives. Together, we remind each other that we are awake in Christ. We're born again into a living hope. That's how you stay awake in church. That's how you stay awake in life spiritually. And the stakes are high. The stakes are really high. Martin Luther, the German monk and reformer, tells a, about a vision that he had where there was the devil on his throne in hell listening to the reports of his demonic agents. They were on a mission to oppose the truth of the gospel and the grace of Christ and to destroy the souls of humanity. The first demon reported that he'd seen a group of Christians crossing the desert. He said, so I loosed the lions upon them and all the Christians were torn limb for limb and the desert was strewn with their mangled corpses. That's a quote from Luther. <laughs> so what, said Satan, so what? The lions destroy their bodies, but their souls were saved forever does no good. It's their souls that I'm after. So the second demon said, well, I saw a company of Christians sailing across the ocean and I sent a mighty wind upon their ship to oppose them and it dashed their ship upon the rocks and every Christian on board was drowned. And the devil said, so what? It's their souls that I'm after. Their bodies may have drowned in the sea, but their souls were saved. Finally, a third demon came forward to give his report. He was an old and crafty demon. He said, for 10 years, I've been trying to cast a Christian into a deep sleep, and at last I have succeeded. And Luther wrote, quote, with that, the corridors of hell rang with shouts of malignant triumph. <clears throat> Maybe some of us need a spiritual alarm clock today. Maybe you needed to set a spiritual alarm clock. Hear now the call of the Lord from Scripture, calling us to wake up. Romans 13, 12 says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Next, 1 Corinthians 15, 34, Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. And finally, Ephesians 5, 14, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word shows us how to stay awake. Forgive us for being lulled into sleep and complacency 
by the, the forces that oppose us. God, I pray that you would help us to learn what it means to stay awake spiritually. Just like me buying some coffee beans, God, I pray that you would help us to, to prick our hearts and quicken our consciences so that we would be alert and alive and awake to the spiritual realities around us so that we may play our part in your good purposes for this world. God, we know there's so much work to be done in this, this world. We see in our communities brokenness and we see racial divisions. We see political divisions. God, use us as your hands and feet. And we know that we can only do that if we are spiritually in tune with you, spiritually alive and alert and awake. God, I pray now that as we move into a time of communion, that you would uh, come and meet with us. May we encounter you, the living God of the universe, in a real way today that moves us closer to you and changes us forever. We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. If you didn't receive a communion cup, if you want to just raise your hand, someone will bring you one uh, during this time. But we invite those who've been born again into a living hope, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord of their hearts and of their lives to join us now at the table of Christ. We're going to have a time of reflection. The Bible says that for those who take of the Lord's Supper, let us reflect first. Let us take an inward inventory, a spiritual assessment of our lives before we take the elements together. We're going to hear a song from Aaron and Denise. And I just invite you just during this time to close your eyes, just center yourself and ask the Lord to show you where you've fallen short. Say, search me and try me, O God. Know my anxious thoughts. Test me. See if there be any anxious way in me and lead me in the way everlasting.